An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 375, submission number 2401. Red Dwarf. Red Dwarf was an unaired pilot commissioned in 1992 for NBC. I feel dizzy. A bit of backstory here. We played the opening of the pilot, and the opening of the pilot contained a crawl. Not unlike Star Wars. And it pretty much explains the premise of the series. So, for the benefit of those who have never seen this show... Or, for the benefit of those who, like Greg, have just seen it and are dizzy, here is the opening crawl. The story so far. By the latter half of the 22nd century, huge space cruisers powered by hydrogen ramjet engines had colonized the outer fringes of the solar system. Humankind was poised to explore the dark mysteries of deep space. We wish we could have told you stories about these brave men and women, but we couldn't afford it. Instead, what you're getting is this. This is the story of a beat-up old mining ship which ambles between Earth and the moons of Saturn, transporting raw materials which are badly needed by... someone. Is it just me, or does this sound really tedious? No one's gonna like this, a show about people who move rocks from planet to planet? Intergalactic rock movers? Who are we kidding? I didn't even want to be a writer. Do you realize how hard it is to type this fast? My fingers are bleeding! Uh-oh. 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 Looks like we're slowing back down. I better start making sense again so all the cheapos who don't have a VCR with freeze frame will think they really missed out on something important. Which you really need to know to understand this story. And now, the saga continues. And yeah, that went so fast you really did need a VCR. I mean, that was what, like the first eight seconds, ten seconds of the show? And it went really fast. This is basically the sort of humor you're dealing with when you watch a typical episode of the British sitcom Red Dwarf. To tell the story of this show, we have to go back a bit. We have to go back to 1987 
with the writing team of Rob Grant and Doug Naylor creating a new show for BBC Two, in which it would be unlike any science fiction show ever created for television. You're not going to see any aliens. You're not going to see any distant moons. You're not going to see any far-off planets. You're not going to see any strange new worlds. Ha! I got it! What you are going to see is Dave Lister, a vending machine repairman, and the last human being in the universe. Yeah, I see you guys are confused. I'll explain. The crew dies in the first episode of Red Dwarf. The crew dies of a massive radiation leak because Dave Lister's partner, Arnold Rimmer, was left to fix a vending machine without him. Because while Arnold is driven, while Arnold is smart, or so he believes... He is incredibly incompetent. He is, as far as seniority and rank is concerned, second from the bottom in terms of the hierarchy. You know, they were very generous into thinking that in the future, vending machines would still be around. It was the mid-80s, dude. What do you want? Come on, you've seen Futurama. So yeah, second from the bottom, guess who's at the bottom? Dave Lister is at the bottom. Arnold Remmer only has dominion over Dave Lister and two scudders, which were robotic hands and feet. While Remmer is out being Remmer, Lister is put in stasis because he brought a cat aboard this gigantic spaceship And rather than surrender the cat for analysis and dissection, he hides him in the hold while he goes into stasis, sacrificing pay and facing criminal charges when he gets back to Earth. Unfortunately, a gigantic nuclear meltdown hits the ship and everybody dies, except for Dave Lister, who is in stasis, and the cat, who is sealed safely in the hold. Fast forward three million years, because you have to wait for the background radiation to come down to a safe level, and the soonest instance of that happening is three million years. Dave Lister is the last human being alive. He is left with a decrepit AI ship system, and a humanoid creature that descended from his very pregnant cat that was in the hold, and a hologram simulation of Arnold Renner, his dead roommate. So the question now becomes... Can this ragtag team of space adventurers make it back to Earth without killing each other? 
Did not expect that. Very well played. So let's go over what happened to bring this show to America. Well, by 1992, Red Dwarf would be in its fifth season in the UK. And thanks to airings on PBS in the US, it's getting sort of a cult following. One of the show's biggest fans would be Linwood Boomer, who around this time would be writing for Night Court, among other things. He would go on to, of course, create Malcolm in the Middle. And we previously talked about him in episode 310, Few Revisited. So, Universal Studios and NBC, which in 1992 would still be two separate companies were really keen on making their own version of the franchise. Universal even went so far as wanting to make a Red Dwarf movie. So, NBC commissioned Universal to team up with Rob Grant and Doug Naylor to create a pilot for an American version of Red Dwarf, which was basically... The End, but condensed... By the way, that's the name of the pilot in the UK, The End. But with additional characters added and the time condensed to fit in the 22-minute window. Linwood Boomer would write the script based upon Grant and Naylor's The End script. And they would go into casting... American actors, save for one, we'll get to that. And here was the cast they went with. First of all, playing Dave Lister is Craig Bierko, who was a known smeghead, known for such films as Cinderella Man, Scary Movie 4, The 13th Floor, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and 10 episodes of Marvel's Wastelanders, where he played Captain America. This was a podcast series, by the way. So I'm guessing this is one of those Sirius XM Marvel podcasts they do on the Sirius XM app. Yeah. Because they have one with Squirrel Girl with Bolana Ventra. Bon. And yeah, aside from that, he was on pretty much 9 out of every 10 things he was on as a future entry. Not going to go into a list here. Playing his roommate, Arnold Rimmer, and his immediate boss, Chris Eichmann, who was known for The Last Days of Disco, Barcelona, Turn the River, and is in the final season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, you know who's on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? I'm going to drink this drink while you tell me. Mike, do you know who's on that show? Just on the final season? No, the whole series. Well, I know a few people, but who are you specifically talking about? I'm talking about a specific person who's on a show that I love. Tony Shalhoub. You know I love it, so I'm not even going to bother saying it. You all know that I love it, so let's keep going on. Okay, no, I really thought you were going to say Alex Borstein. Oh, yeah. Because I know you love Family Guy and Mad TV. Uh, well, I love Alex Forstein in general. 
Not, I love, not know, romantically, I, brutonically. I love Alex Borstein in Mad TV and Mrs. Maisel. I adored her on Power Rangers Zio, just saying. Oh, that's right. She was on Power Rangers Zio. Playing Holly, the ship's computer, Jane Leaves. That's right. A, a pre Frasier, Jane Leaves. Yes. We all know her as Daphne on Frasier. And this would have been a year before Frasier premiered? Yep. Good thing this didn't get picked up then. And fun fact, she was on Throb with the late, great Paul Walker and making her case for the Hall of Fame, Diana Canova. Oh, if Diana Canova is not in the Hall of Fame now, she's going to be next year. Let's just say it right now. We're putting her in the Hall of Fame next year. Even if I have to cover all of Throb to do it. Just remember, she's a big girl now. Oh, yeah, she is. Father Timothy Flotsky knows she's a big girl. Ain't that right, Sal Viscuso? <laughs> they ran off. They eloped or whatever. And they had a demon kid. Remember they had the demon kid? Oh, the demon kid. Oh. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's so pretty. Playing the cat, that is his name, the cat, Hinton Battle, who is a classic song and dance guy. He was in Dreamgirls. He was on Smash. He played Bill Bojangles Robinson on a 2001 episode of The Wonderful World of Disney, Greg. Oh! It was was Child Star, The Shirley Temple Story. Oh, that's nice. Child Star, The Shirley Temple Story. So I guess, was he on the good ship Lollipop? He was also on a 1993 episode of Quantum Leap where he played Thames. It was a season 5 episode. Revenge of the Evil Leaper. September 16th, 1987. Oh, so it's from the Evil Leaper trilogy. Yeah. This might be a couple of episodes away from the end of Quantum Leap. Yeah, it was. It was a couple episodes from the end. I think it was like I think part part one was like in the beginning of the season, and parts two and three were like near the end of the season. And I think I did mention one of the episodes in the Evil Leaper trilogy. Neil Patrick Harris is in one of them. Yeah, we're about five episodes away from the end of Quantum Leap. Before, you know, Ben Song did what he did. Yes. Thanks, Ian. And rounding out the cast in the pilot, Robert Llewellyn, who actually played Crichton in the original Red Dwarf, but wasn't on the pilot. He would be a more developed character around season three. He first made his appearance in the season two premiere called Crichton, but he would be played by a different actor. Robert Llewellyn came in Season 3 when it was explained away that Lister found Crichton's remains and rebuilt him. But on the American version, he's just one of the new recruits. And for those of you who don't know, Crichton is a robot. 
There are people on this cast who are meant to be guest spots if this episode were to ever have been picked up, like uh, Captain Tao, the captain of Red Dwarf, was played by Lorraine Toussaint, who nowadays is playing Auntie to Queen Latifah on CBS Sunday Nights. She's on the Equalizer. And playing Christine Kachansky, who is Dave Lister's love interest, Elizabeth Moorhead. And this would be six years removed from One World on Saturday morning. And Greg, she was on a 1992 episode of Seinfeld. The Pez Dispenser. Oh, the Pez Dispenser. So those are all of the people you need to know on this cast. Now let's go into the story. And by the way, the full pilot is available to stream right now on YouTube, but there is a pretty good documentary that you might want to stream too. We're not going to get much into it because we don't have the time for it, but I suggest you go stream that pilot and go stream that documentary. It's called Dwarfing USA. We have an exterior shot of the Red Dwarf, a Class 5 minor freighter with a cargo capacity of 47 cubic miles. She's a big ship. Holly begins by welcoming everyone to the Red Dwarf, a Jupiter Mining Corporation minor freighter, which is equipped with every possible convenience from shopping malls to bowling alleys, it even has its very own zero-gravity football stadium. Apparently zero-gravity football very big in the 22nd century. Hold on. Is it like the game Cyberball? Do you remember the game Cyberball? I remember the game Cyberball. It is absolutely nothing like Cyberball. Oh, that's a shame. Remember, Cyberball is football in the 21st century. Oh, so that's the difference. 21st and 22nd century. Football. Yes. Anyway, Holly introduces herself as the ship's computer with an operating IQ of 6,000. The same IQ as 6,000 PE teachers. Then we meet First Officer Munson, who on this pilot is played by Michael Heitzman, who is basically just an extra. This is important because First Officer Munson is dead. And this version of Munson is a hologram. He has a silver ball on his forehead to denote that he is a hologram. Projected by light, and he can't touch anything except himself. So basically, his sex life is unchanged. Crichton boards Red Dwarf and gets ready for his assignment. And then, while he's getting ready for his assignment, Lister and Rimmer are off to clean another chicken soup machine. And the thing you have to understand, this is a very odd couple relationship. Dave Lister, he's calm, he's chill, he's totally a slacker. Arnold Rimmer is a classic type A who's a bit on the uh, neurotic side, but he has ambition. He's going to take the officer's exam and become an officer aboard Red Dwarf. 
except when he usually does take the officer's exam, he writes five things, stands up, and passes out. Like I said before, Rimmer is in charge of Lister and two Scudders. Scudders, of course, being the robotic hands that assist now and then. Crichton enters looking for the captain because he's a little bit lost. Of course, Rimmer takes one look at him and says, You look like a gigantic novelty condom. So while Rimmer goes off to uh, fill another vending machine, Lister and Crichton get to talking, and one of the things they talk about are the only thing that is, and now I'm quoting, keeping Lister sane aboard this ship, and that is Christine Kachansky. Who is Lister's girlfriend? Yeah, sure, that's what we'll go with. Yeah, let's go with girlfriends. Yeah, even though, come on, looking at him and looking at her, she deserves so much better. So, Christine Kachansky arrives just in time to have the talk. The talk? The talk. What kind of talk do you think it is, Mike? I wonder if it's like a talk show with Barbara Walters and Joy Behar and Rosie O'Donnell. Maybe it's that type of talk. It is not that type of talk. No. Christine Kachansky wants a relationship with a man with goals. And Lister, who went from sitting in a bar in Detroit to waking up on a park bench in the fourth moon of Saturn wearing absolutely nothing but a traffic cone on his head, has no goals. He has no money. He has no papers. He's only signing on to this jug heap to earn his wages back to Earth. And now he has nothing except for old condom head and he has a cat. A very abandoned and very pregnant cat named Frankenstein that Lister rescued from the Jovian moon on Titan. There's just one problem. Captain Tao has detected an unquarantined organism on board the ship. Guess who brought the unquarantined organism on board? Oh, him. Yeah, him. Dang it! So he gives the cat to Crichton to hide in the ship's hold. And while Rimmer takes his officer's exam and, true to form, passes out, Lister is called to the command bridge where he is discovered on security cam with a cat. Captain Tao gives him one and only one chance to confess. Lister asks Tao, what would happen if I gave you the cat? Tao says, she'd have it cut up and run tests on it. And to which Lister could only say, well, with all due respect, Captain, what's in it for the cat? In comes Crichton, escorted by two guards. Crichton, the only other being on board the ship who knows where the cat is. Captain Tao wants to know where the cat is. So, 
She presses Crichton for an answer to the point where Crichton's head explodes. And he's taken off for repairs. At which point Tao gives Lister a choice. Surrender the cat or be sentenced to six months in a stasis chamber, forfeiting all your wages and facing criminal charges upon return back to Earth. Oh, tough call. Mike, what would you do? I don't know. I don't know! Well, Lister chooses the stasis pod. For those of you who don't know what a stasis pod is... If you've seen Alien, you know what a stasis pod is. Yes, but I like this explanation that Munson gives. It's a kind of suspended animation. See, like, x-rays can't penetrate lead. Time can't penetrate a stasis field. To you, time won't exist. To us, you'll exist, but as a non-event mass with a quantum probability of zero. So as they cart Rimmer out on a stretcher, because he fainted, Kachinsky hears about what Lister did for his cat who, by the way, is still safely tucked away in the ship's hold. Before they activate the stasis field, she mouths, I love you. To which Lister was like, I lick you? No, love! Love! She said I love you! I'll talk! Let me out! I'll... You see where I'm going with this, right? Yes, I do see where you're going with this. Yeah. And by the way, a stasis field is basically one second for him, six months for the rest of us. Three million years later... Hold on. We can Are you thinking what I'm thinking, Greg? Many, many, many years later. Oh, no, I was hoping there's one out there. Three million years later. So much later that the old narrator got tired of waiting, and they had to hire a new one. The stasis field deactivates. Lister jumps out of the booth and says, I'll talk! I'll talk! But all he hears are silence and shadows, and echoes. Holly reactivates and says, Hi Dave, I think you better come up to the command bridge. And while he's going to the command bridge, he can't help but notice that he's all by himself. And so he asks Holly, where is everyone? And Holly gives the answer. There was an accident, Dave. A radiation leak. The entire crew was subjected to a lethal dose of cadmium, too. To which Lister responds, Is everybody okay? And Holly's like, Everybody's dead, Dave. That's what lethal means. Dun, dun, dun. So, cue the whole silent running deal. Lister's in the control room, and eating every bit of ash that's left in his wake. And he's like, what are you talking about, Holly? And what's all this white stuff? 
while he's eating it. And Holly's like, that particular pile is catering Officer Murphy. To which Lister spits out and realizes he's eating the crew. So what happens is one of the drive plates in the engine room was defective. It broke apart and killed everyone. And here's Lister thinking, I have no plan now. I had a plan. It was going to be a farm with Christine Kachansky, a dog, three cows, and two pigs. Lister is pretty much left by himself with a computer that is 2,999,999 years out of date. But he's not going to be completely by himself because Lister finds a holographic projection device and activates it to find Arnold Rimmer, whose forehead now has a silver spear. And what does Rimmer remember? He was biting on a stick in the medical unit, and then there was a flash. And then I died. All of a sudden, he realizes, Oh my god, I'm dead. So, what does death feel like, you're probably wondering. Well, according to Arnold Rimmer, death is like being at an Amish bachelor party. He basically blames Lister for going into stasis and causing everybody to die. He's also not alone because Crichton, who is still waiting to be fixed up, is in med bay waiting to be fixed up. So Lister fixes him up. The three venture into the hold and discover a man in a very dapper suit and quite flat on his feet. He is a Bellus sapiens. The scientific term is Bellus sapiens. He just calls himself the cat. The cat? Yes, because, and Holly explains this perfectly, Frankenstein survived the blast and her four kittens, who each produced a litter of four more kittens twice a year. When Frankenstein died, there were nearly 200,000 cats, including the odd mutation. Wait a second. There, hold on. 200,000 cats on this ship. In the hold of the ship. That is incredible. Eventually, they formed a civilization around the things they found in storage. Just a few years ago, a bloody civil war broke out. The entire cat population was killed, all except that one just around the corner. Oh, darn. I was hoping we'd get, like, a cat version of Wild West Cowboys of Moon Mesa. Lister is left on his own with a cat, a robot, a decrepit malfunctioning computer, and a hologram of his dead roommate. And here he's moping. He's such a loser. He started from the bottom, and now he's back at the bottom. But all of a sudden, something happens on the other side of the room. 
It is everybody in the future saying, don't panic. You need to listen very carefully. We have less than one minute before we have to go back. We're from the future. Don't ask any questions. We have something very important to tell you. Everybody's like, what is he going to tell me? And he's like, well, aren't you going to say something? Just give us the message. We're almost out of time. Okay, listen. This is very important. Everything hangs on this. You gotta... And then a minute passes by and everybody disappears. Nobody knows what they gotta do. But somehow, they survive long enough to send that image of themselves to the past. And Lister's like, I gotta try and get back home! And Holly's like, Dave, we've been accelerating away from Earth for three million years. Even at top speed, you'd never get back in your lifetime. And Lister's like, well, maybe there's a shortcut. Maybe we could find parallel universes or time warps, black holes, space stuff. So he tries turning the ship around. Turn the ship around, oh. He's got to turn the ship around. Ultimately, Holly has her very own diary. Sort of like a whole Doogie Hauser thing to close out the episode. Dear Diary, I think we made a good start on our journey back home. We picked up some broadcast signals that might have originated from Earth. We saw this Cuban guy who kept hitting bongo drums and calling for Lucy. We think he was some kind of cult leader. Ah! <laughs> They got the transmissions for I Love Lucy. <laughs> so at least we seem to be heading in the right direction. In the meantime, Dave has learned how to drive the Starbug, which is the uh, auxiliary ship that goes to and from planets. Rimmer has an interesting experience trying to make a new body for himself. Crichton met a very nice girl. And all of this is interspersed with uh, clips from the BBC version. Although their relationship wasn't without its difficulties. Cat? Well, he just likes to play with the lights on the laser panel. And everywhere we go, we seem to make new friends. Oops, gotta run. I wish I had time to tell you everything that's happened, but you'll get the details later. And that's the show. I'll tell you right now, something I didn't know until I was doing research for this show, Todd Rundgren actually wrote and performed the music for this show. Really? Yeah. So, hopes were high that NBC may have found the next big thing. Unfortunately, during the production of this show... They decided to make not just one pilot, but another pilot to pitch to the U.S. But here's a case of we had to leave because of creative differences. We were creative and they were different. Rob Grant left, citing too much interference from Universal Studios and NBC and unfunny scripts being pushed onto them leaving Doug Naylor to attempt to hold things together alone. 
Naylor himself was not impressed with the casting and was one of the reasons why the casting was slightly altered for the second pilot. The script itself was written by Linwood Boomer and directed by Jeff Melman. By the way, Jeff Melman, genius. And during the filming, audience reaction was good and they felt that the story was well received. But ultimately, NBC passed on it. And neither version of the pilot was ever broadcast until it was released on DVD as one of the bonus features of the BBC video releases. The first version of the pilot was on that box set, but not the second because BBC Video was unable to obtain licensing rights to it. But that second pilot is a thing on TV for another time. But like we said, nobody came from this pilot empty-handed. Craig Bierko, Chris Eichmann... Hit and Battle, they all went on to big things in their career. Jane Leaves booked frickin' Frasier, for cripe's sakes. Of course, if this show is ever picked up, she would be known as the head in the computer instead of Daphne Moon. And Robert Llewellyn returned to tape the rest of Red Dwarf, and they got to use the suit that was used for the Universal pilot. Oh, that's great. So, a little bonus there. And, Red Dwarf continues to be a fan favorite on both sides of the Atlantic, from repeated airings on Dave to DVD releases here in the U.S., leaving this pilot as a footnote and... A thing that was almost on TV. But we are not done with the Red Dwarf story. And like I said, that's another pilot for another pilot month. Well, you can always go to our website. It was a thing on TV.com. We can find all the previous 374 episodes before this one. You can catch all of our stuff. We got all sorts of bonuses. Live watches, mini-sodes, the works on there. Don't forget to like and subscribe our YouTube page where you can stay up-to-date on all future entries. And also, we're on every social media platform at It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where we're at It Was A Thing On TV podcast. Well, we've done two pilots this week, and we got a third. And as I mentioned in last week's first pilot and pointless well, we got to shoehorn one of these pilots in a tie-in with a certain movie that's coming out this week. Ooh, Knights of the Zodiac? What the hell is that? It's a movie version of the cartoon, but I know it's not that. No, it certainly is not that. And let me just say, I thought when I put this, I'm just going to give this out as a warning. I thought, okay, we're going to have this pilot. It's going to tie into this movie that's coming out. I'm sure we're going to have a grand old time. Boy, was I wrong. I was very, 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 very wrong. 
Yeah, the first two pilots we did ranged from bad to terrible. This one is borderline unwatchable. And that's coming up next time right here on It Was a Thing on TV. Thanks for listening. Please be kind to each other, and we will see you for the next one! Row! We have never watched Red Dwarf. We are not familiar with its content. We never watch anything on BBC Two. All Earth television is human propaganda. The works of Shakespeare were written by a Dalek. All Beethoven symphonies were written by a Dalek. What about Mandy by Barry Manilow? Was that one of ours? It was not. I didn't think so. We have nothing more to say. We have never seen Red Dwarf. Now go away before we exterminate you. Exterminate, exterminate, exterminate! That light bulb gag was funny though, from series six. Remember that? What? When they wanted to go to Red Alert. Your heart patterns are impaired. You are not behaving like a true Dalek. You should be exterminated. All I said was it was funny. That night with a light bulb. Exterminate! No sense of humor, some people.